0: Beth and I'm a Psychological Wellbeing Practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and I've loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate. And it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate. But this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot. So, the biggest thank you ever. Coming up in today's episode, I am joined by my guest, Jonathan Paddy, who is an assistant psychologist living and working in London. We talk through so many great topics, including trauma, community psychology and his experiences of wanting to see more black male psychologists in the profession and how he goes about supporting and encouraging people to come forward and be part of a really encouraging, aspiring community. Hope you'll find today's episode so useful.
1: If you're looking to become a psychologist, be your guide with this podcast until your side you'll be on your way to being qualified it's the aspiring psychologist podcast with dr marianne
0: Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. You might well be listening to this um, when it's released, um, which means we are in the middle of application season for educational psychology and for clinical psychology. Um, And yeah, if you would like some more advice or support or guidance, please do check out the free Compassionate. Q&A replays which you can find on my YouTube channel Dr Marianne Trent do please bear in mind there's the Aspiring Psychologist Collective book And the Clinical Psychologist Collective book, too, which get wonderful reviews and can be really normalizing and validating. And today's guest and I are talking all about that sense of being validated, of being seen um, and feeling like you're part of something. And that's something that those books and uh, my own aspiring psychologist membership does really well. But it's a really, really interesting conversation. I'm joined by Jonathan Paddy who's an assistant psychologist and I hope you'll find it really interesting I'd love to know your thoughts on this episode please do connect with me on social media I'm Dr Marianne Trent everywhere and do come and hang out with me on the free Facebook group the aspiring psychologist community with Dr Marianne Trent if you find this content helpful please do like subscribe share it on socials. That would be wonderful. And drop the odd comment in here and there too, would be fabulous. Anyway, I will look forward to catching up with you on the other side of this episode and I hope you find it useful.
2: Hi, my name is Jonathan Paddy and I'm a guest on the podcast episode you're about to listen to. When Marianne and I recorded this episode, we didn't realise that was going to come out during Black History Month and so we haven't mentioned it in the podcast at all so i thought it was important to come on and just speak about it very quickly before you listen to the episode so black history month is a month in which we actively try to center the black experience something that i think is incredibly important And we've managed to do that serendipitously in this episode i think it's really important to have these conversations about um, the experience of black men of black people and other minoritized groups these conversations need to be also had outside of these specified months i think if we consider the lack of diversity within clinical psychology as a profession so both in terms of the staff members and the clients that we see it's really important to discuss how we can do the work to become a more equitable profession and i think that includes considering the power that we all hold and to use that to support people from minoritised communities. Anyway, um, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And I really hope that you enjoyed this episode.
0: Hi, I just want to welcome along our guest for today, Jonathan Paddy. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for saying yes, and we got chatting on LinkedIn, um, and we'll come to to what we got chatting about, um, but firstly, I think it's always really interesting for our audience to learn a little bit about you and your psychology, passions, and career. Um, what first turned your head in the direction of psychology, Jonathan? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. Um, I mean, I started at A-level, so it was just a choice that we had at at A level and I thought this seems like it's about people. I'm interested in people and so and so I went for that. Um and just found it really, really interesting really. Um I took that on and did that at university. Um I actually didn't didn't want to do clinical psychology at all um going into university. Had a few lectures on it and really didn't didn't want to do it. Um, it turned out I just had been misinformed really. So my lectures were really diagnostic based. Like um yeah we'd look at the um the DSM and yeah the diagnostic manual and kind of try to diagnose people explicitly and I was like I I kind of want to do a bit more than that really. And as I got to find out a bit more about psychology and um, so clinical psychology specifically I was like oh actually I do I do really like that I am really interested. Um, and then I think personally I had um I some things going on in my life, my friends' lives, where their um their mental health was really affected. And at the time we didn't really think about it as a mental health difficulty, but just some tough times going on for that person. And the more I had some psychological language and knowledge and reflecting on that, I was, I don't know, it just maybe really interested in in trying to support people in that situation, especially who didn't have the language or weren't able to to name it and term it and term it
0: that yeah great and yeah I think I don't know what what they're teaching in universities but I certainly had a module on clinical psychology as part of my degree and it was so boring and it was taught I think by a clinical psychologist but it was so unengaging and one sided and flat. And I definitely didn't look forward to those lectures. And I definitely wasn't thinking, I can't wait to be a clinical psychologist. It was only when I think it was the same lady who stood on stage in the final weeks of my third year and was telling us more about the actual job and then said, Oh, it's so difficult to get onto. I wouldn't recommend it. It's really competitive. I was then like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll give that a go then um but yeah why aren't they being a bit more representative about what us clinicians actually do and how amazing this is as a career and I guess that's part of why I do this podcast really is to shed a light on the different things that are going on in the world of clinical psychology because I honestly believe that we're in the best, best job in the world. And you know, you're a little bit further ahead in your career, but I love that you're you're looking ahead to where you want to be as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you say that and you had a Electra say that it's competitive and you shouldn't go for it. I think it seems like a lot of people have had that that spiel from Electra or someone senior to them at some point. It it is competitive, I'm finding that very much so, but I still think it's worth it's worth going for for sure i think it's important it's it's needed
0: it really is it really is and we need such a range of different people um, within this sphere you know so that we're offering representative services but also so we're we're being able to feed in our own rich experiences. Just before we met, we were we were speaking about you've lived kind of all over the country, really, and had a very different upbringing because of that. Um, and I think you're now living in London, um, but you know, absolutely, we should be having you know people that haven't just had you know the same experience. Um, you know, it's really important stuff. And and I know that's. Um, that's partly what we're going to be talking about as well. But before we go on to that, if we could have a bit of a chat about what you're doing now. So you're an assistant psychologist at the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm currently an assistant psychologist. Um, I work in a, a high-intensity user team. So there's a few of them around the country. But um, I guess for those who maybe haven't heard of it, um, we essentially help people who present to A&E quite frequently or ring London Ambulance um, quite frequently as well usually for some kind of unmet need whether it's uh, mental health, social, physical health, usually a combination of all three and try and support them so our team is made up of like a psychiatric liaison nurses, some um, psychology and a little bit of psychiatrist time as well. But yeah that's what I do currently.
0: Great I remember reading something it was a long time ago it might even have been in the early stages of my qualified life, so probably about 12 years ago, talking about the um, the spend and the cost that's indicated in people who do regularly call the emergency services when actually their needs are not emergency-based. And it was staggering. It was staggering. And it obviously it overstretches an already overstretched system. Can you tell us about, you know, case to case people are like, why why can't you just go to ambulance? You know, Why can't you just go to hospital? Could you tell us a few, a, a bit more information about why, why that's not the best place for somebody who's having, you know, an existential crisis or something they can't sort out? And it might sound, um, you know, quite simple, but I try to make this podcast Standalone, really, so that people don't need to go off and Google stuff. So, are you happy okay. explaining a little bit more about that, Jonathan?
2: Um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can have a go. Um, so, I think, I guess, to to say, yeah, to start off, I think people should use AE if they feel like they need to. I think that's really important. That's one of the things that we we say to a lot of our our clients. And um, if you feel unwell and you feel like you need support from Ame, go. Um in terms of addressing what you're saying about the the cost there is yes significant cost attached to people frequently calling um emergency services that's that's definitely true and we we see the numbers for that and um, i think you you wanted me to touch on why maybe it's not ideal to be calling the london ambulance as as, as often as some people do i think it's really difficult to tell people not to do that. I find it quite difficult to do that. Um, because usually what we see is there's been an unmet need or people falling through the cracks somewhere. So they're, they're just trying to seek support and show that they need they need help. I think maybe a way that could help that is to maybe fund services or to, um, I guess, provide more high-tensity user teams across the country that could maybe intercept and help people. And um, it catches people earlier, really. I think I find it quite hard to tell people not to not to do that at all and um, does that answer your question?
0: It does yeah you've done a really nice job there and as I was listening to you I was thinking about a book that I'm reading at the moment it's called A Man Called Ove I don't know if you've read it it's um it's set in Sweden um and it's about a little man who um who lives by himself, um, and. I don't think it's going to be much of a spoiler um, to say that in the first chapter he's trying to end his own life because he's not having a very nice time. And as the chapters unfold, he becomes more and more immersed in in the community and in his local um, connections. And what is really wonderful about it is that community psychology feel. And actually, what I think we get quite often in services is quite often people are just lonely or they're not being able to find a purpose, they're not being able to find where they fit. And I think there's definitely how we, you know, include people in society so that they do feel that they've got a function and so that they feel, I don't know, like there's a point in them existing and that we're relying on other people, we're part of something. And, you know, I think when we feel disconnected from others and even in especially living in cities sometimes you don't even know your neighbor you know Um, and you might be suffering similar struggles as a parent or you know even somebody living independently or as a widow experiences of grief and trauma and we just don't get a chance to to know that and so yeah I'm I'm really excited about any initiative to kind of think about community psychology and starting people to be able to have conversations. So just before we hit record, I was telling you that I'd been to an open evening for a secondary school yesterday and I really liked what they were saying, that actually they put on events that are not just for pupils, not just for prospective parents and pupils they put on community events that's something I really like about our primary school as well because it is an opportunity to get together to do something different to start conversations to start connections and you know I'm all for that
2: yeah yeah that sounds really great
0: yeah so for me it's it's kind of what you do really is that you're trying to sort out people's problems in a way that that negates and bypasses emergency services which which are always going to have a higher cost per minute or a higher cost and how I don't know how quite how it's um how it's priced up but a higher cost and more of a a planned and responsive approach to what you're doing but it sounds like the work you're doing with your clients or your patients is very different from from person to person
2: yeah yeah, very much so. I think there's a huge spectrum um, of people that we see. So there's people on uh, one end who are coming to um, any quite frequently for things that we can help with. Um, I don't want to say they're simple, but they're easy for us to solve because we can mobilize the system in a way to support them. We do have people at the other end of the spectrum where it gets really, really difficult for us um, to help them, we're a very, very small team. There's not, there's not many of us, and we're one of the biggest um, teams, high intensity user teams in the, in the country, I think. Yeah. So these people struggle with significant mental health difficulties, um, social difficulties. So that might include um, not having a fixed abode, and um, so that might be really difficult for them. As well as some physical health difficulties, um, so they could have um, a broken leg, for example, or an infection somewhere. So people have a combination of these things which are relatively complex and you have to work really hard to uh, mobilize another hepatology team or the um I don't know, some other team orthopedic teams and um, sometimes even A&E to try and help these people and it can it can get really really complicated but I think we're doing some really good and interesting work uh, things I've never really done before so yeah every day is it's very different
0: it sounds brilliant. And I, from knowing what I know about people and knowing what I know about trauma, I'm guessing there's a lot of trauma running through a lot of the work that you do, even if it's not something that the client would necessarily describe as trauma. I think when we hear stories and we we know about their upbringing, it, you know, it's, it's mind-blowing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about, about trauma recently and how, how difficult it is for people, how, how difficult these these stories are um, and how difficult these lives are, you know, to us I guess they're stories of of people that we're trying to try help and support but these are um, people's experiences and people's lives and trying to pay attention to that and mm-hmm. try and help them as best as best we can through it. I think yeah. one thing I was just going to say is that I don't think people not everyone likes using the word trauma and so it's trying to be really careful about how we bring that to the table yeah
0: yeah that's an important consideration and when I worked in inner city Birmingham there was lots and lots of different cultures and lots and lots of different languages and lots and lots of different understandings of mental health and what that means whether it's stigma whether it's embraced and um I used to work with many different interpreting kind of or interpreters for for supporting the clients to engage. Is that something you find that you are doing quite a lot in in your role, Jonathan?
2: Um, so not not as much, actually, which is surprising. We're in an area where um, there's a lot of people from Bangladesh. Um, so I would expect to be using um, interpreters a bit more. But so far in my role, I, I haven't. I haven't as yet. I'm not exactly
0: okay. sure about that is. <laughs> yeah, that, that does surprise me. Um, for it for especially for a London service. It was certainly yeah. in Birmingham, I would say sometimes as many as a third of my clients were probably um using interpreters, I would say. Um, do you think it's about well, I guess your service is a bit different because it's people that are not, you know, necessarily engaging in other services but um i don't know it's interesting isn't it why why are you getting mainly people that can speak english you know being referred to your service or repeatedly phoning for emergency services
2: i think it's something about being able to um navigate the system so you need language to navigate the system somewhat and um yeah, I think that that's probably what's happening. So if people aren't able to speak the language and don't have people around to support them and they can't get access to to support and, and, and to help. So I think, I was just can say, people in our team do um, sometimes see people with interpreters, but, but not very often. I think it's a really interesting point to think about. And I might need to take that back to our service lead and think about how we can, or see, see if there's a gap, see if we are missing people because they're not able to um, engage in, and services or, or communicate their needs yeah really interesting point
0: point. Hmm. and I guess I was then thinking about whether there's potentially a role for an audit you know are you auditing who is presenting at emergency services and looking at their demographics to see where you can perhaps better engage it's always quite fun to think about where you can potentially get some research and dissemination stuff to put on your form is that something that that goes on quite routinely anyway jonathan to help inform what you're doing
2: um yeah so at the moment there's quite a lot of um conversations about audits and um, thinking about the kind of patients that we see so our criteria really is that we need someone to have attended amy over 10 times in the last 12 months so we do have a minimum criteria um but what we find is that the people that we end up seeing often attend Amy a significant amount. So I'd say significant being like 25 times a month, something like that. And so the system is um encouraged to get in contact with us and refer this person so that we can try and help support them. Um
0: yeah. Twenty-five times a month, gosh, that's that's it's, almost once a day isn't it but I think yeah. you know as a commissioner you might see that as a bit of a nightmare as a client but I think what we see as professionals are gosh that's a lot of distress you know that's yeah. a lot of uncontainment that's a lot of feeling lost alone scared and really not sure what else to, to do and when I worked in a youth prison um, sometimes young people would harm themselves and there was different viewpoints around how that should be responded to because some people were like, oh, well, if you're too nurturing, then almost the nurturing and the kindness from the nurses that care for you then become part of the problem because it's part of the motivation. It's like a secondary gain, but sometimes it's a primary gain. If I hurt myself, then I can be cared for. Um, but, you know, we're not going to start delivering services that are not humane or not kind. And, of course, what we want to think about health service employees is that they are compassionate, that they are kind. And it should feel like a safe place, like a port in the storm. But there might well be more appropriate ports for storms. And I guess that's what you're trying to do.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting that you, you say that, Um yeah, we, we do have some situations where people are coming to A and E repeatedly, or calling the London Ambulance repeatedly, and and yeah, second secondary gain of that is 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 that they're um, receiving good care and support and some attention, and people are people holding them in mind. I think we're talking loneliness just previously. People holding them in mind. I think it's really important for people to to have that, um, and yeah, I think it does it does contribute sometimes to the to the presentation.
0: And I do try and practice what I preach a little bit. I do speak to strangers in the street. Um, I developed a friendship with a lady who since moved away, which is really sad, but she was um, 87 when we knew her best and she lived by herself. And me and my children would go around and visit her. And she was just so delighted to have. A phase of her life that she thought had passed her by, which was young children coming around to play. And it was really lovely. And I've befriended another little chap. I won't say what his name is, but um, you know, we we often kind of familiar strangers that walk, um, walk similar routes at similar times of day. And, you know, I know his name and what I know about him and I know what he gets up to. And I love that. I love that. But I know that lots of people don't like talking to strangers, they don't like forming connections, but I do try to do it where I can, and try and make a difference where I can as well. Which is again a little bit off topic, but it's related, isn't it?
2: No, it definitely is related. I, I'm thinking about and smiling, sorry, because I'm thinking about London, and that that isn't so frequent in in the city. <laughs> People often head down, marching to wherever they're going. And um, although saying that, recently we've had um, a couple of new neighbours move in, and they've been super friendly and come and said hi when we moved into so our. Our house um, a couple of years ago. One of the neighbors brought some food over, and I was super, super surprised and shocked. But it was a really nice thing to, to uh, for her to have done, which was
0: which was great. I love that. I saw just on I don't know if you're part of it, but the, there's a massive, massive Facebook group called I think it's Family tips lockdown support or something so it obviously started in lockdown but now it's a massive group that gets really good engagement and one of the viral posts on there recently was um, one of my new neighbours has just brought around all this food for me um, and she speaks this language and I want to be able to culturally appropriately respond how should I do that and it was really really interesting hearing people's descriptions of that and you know well um, if she speaks um, you know Urdu then she's probably vegetarian and actually maybe she wouldn't even be happy with accepting food from strangers so you might be better to give her a card and give her some flowers Um, you know and I just I just found it so interesting and you know people were like oh that's such a lovely thing to do why don't people do that more but I love that you know even two days in a row you've now told me that that happens as Well, yeah,
2: yeah, definitely does. It definitely does. I think what I was thinking about when you said that story is about how the diversity in that group is is really helpful because you're able to then tap into different languages, different cultures, and you can better respond to to that, that act of kindness, which is which is great.
0: We're partly meeting today to think about the importance of culture and the importance of identity and the importance of. Um, connecting with people that you feel you've got similarities with. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important to you, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely do that. Um, So I'm someone who's been in psychology for a little while, I think like five-ish years. Um, Like you said before, I've lived in a lot of different cities in psychology. Um, And to be honest, I haven't come across many, many men to start with, but many black men at all. And um, I think I've met two, two black clinical psychologists, and that's been black men who are clinical psychologists. And that's been um, with me actively seeking those people out to get some advice about about things. Um, and it's all kind of come to a head recently where I've applied for the course a couple of times um, and haven't been successful. And I was thinking about community and support. Um, I think there have been a number of things and I have and I've kind of focused and get my head down and trying to achieve this thing. And I've kind of forgotten about the other parts outside the um, psychology. And so I thought, you know what? Maybe I need a community, and maybe other people are feeling similar to to what I am. Um, so, with that in mind, I kind of um, went about seeking people in spaces, so using Facebook groups like you have spoken about, and um, the post on LinkedIn, which is is what um, I think you saw. Um, and then on Twitter as well. So just reaching out on all the social media spaces and um, to try and recruit some people. Um, and, and yeah, we've managed to do that and, and start start this, this group, which has been um, really, really great, actually. Really great.
0: Well done to you. And um I think there's absolutely a space for it. if you can't see it it's harder to feel like you can be it but if you can't see what you need it's it's absolutely great to create your own um and what sort of you know is it just conversations that you have do you organize events are there big plans there what what what's going on currently and have you got a view for how that might develop in future
2: Yeah so um We've had potentially, I think, three or four meetings. Three meetings, I think. We've got another meeting next week. Um, so yeah, I guess this is something that I had the idea about, and I went and reached out to people. But I've currently got a, a co-facilitator on board, and um, who's been really helpful, and we can working on things together. I'm hoping that we can get one more, so between three of us, we can, um, yeah, we we can try and curate and um, develop this space. I think two of the important principles is that. Okay, yeah, so we want to grow from each other, really, you know, so having the space in the community so we can, yeah, better support each other and grow from each other's experiences. I think that's that's really important. Um, but yeah, the, the second thing I think is also a social space. So obviously, the group ends up focusing on the decline because a lot of people in that space want to get on this course and progress within psychology. So, not everyone there wants to do a decline, they want to do um, just progress within psychology, doing other things, so maybe the cat course and things like that. But the other part is, um, I think to make it sustainable, there needs to be a social element and a connection element. So we've been thinking about ways to keep that going. So we haven't yet met in person. We've had um, all three meetings have been on Zoom so far. But uh, me and the other co-facilitator are trying to organise a, a meet-up session. But I think it's it's a little bit difficult because people are in different parts of the country. So there's a fair few of us in London. There's people in Liverpool. There's um, people in, I think, maybe Coventry as well. Um, so, yeah, where you are, yeah, there's people all over the country. And um, trying Amazing. to bring those people together is is a little bit difficult. There's about 15 of us right now. and um, are hoping to increase those numbers
0: you <laughs> Sometimes it can be useful to piggyback off another event so if you know that perhaps you're gonna to go to a particular conference or that something's happening then maybe you could meet like the day before that so that you're kind of in the same area of the country anyway but there's always there's always room for planning something but yeah it puts it puts costs up doesn't it and um but yeah I think there is something around that that connection in person that can be really special and when sometimes I think via remote technology meeting making friends and feeling safe can be can be trickier you know so being in person can be really useful for that.
2: Yeah I think we've had to name that so when we started the group we thought about how we want this to be explicitly a safe space and non-judgmental space for people to come and be themselves or authentic selves and I think that's that's really important. Um, so you were talking about events before and sorry I didn't really answer that part about events and um, there's another group which I guess kind of inspired me to uh create this this offshoot if you will and um, the snap band they're a group on uh, linkedin which i'm part of they hold a lot of events and um, for i guess people of the global majority really so they have events for those for that cohort that group um and so we've been signposting people from our group to those groups to those events sorry um, and i think that's really really useful for people you know because they've got a good thing going there, so we don't want to recreate the wheel too much. We're just sending people that way, and we're thinking of what we can create in the future.
0: What was it you said? The Snap Band. Snap
2: Bam is the name of the group. Snap
0: Bam. Yeah. Could you spell it and guide us through what I'm guessing? That, I'm guessing that means Black and Asian minorities, does it? But Snap yeah. Bam. <laughs> so I
2: think I think it stands for Supporting Network. Um. Or aspiring psychologists, black, Asian, minority, ethnic, I think, something to that effect.
0: Okay, so all of the letters are important yeah. there. Snap Bam, right. Snap, bam. Okay, yes. so if people want to learn more about Snap Bam, that's, did you say Twitter and Facebook? Is that so, where they?
2: Yeah. They've got a, a group on Twitter, they've got a group on LinkedIn as well. I think there's almost like 800, 900 people in that in that space. So that's definitely a really, really useful space for resources. And um, I've gone to events in the past and they're really they're really good. They do really well and curate them to, to um, the, the people who attend. So I think it's, it's a really good thing to do. And in our group, we'd hope to have events like that as well. Um, but so far we're focusing on just trying to build some connections and uh, we hold, a couple of reflective um, spaces so that's what we've done in the group so far so a couple of times we someone will bring something and we'll talk about it for about 10 minutes and then we'll all try and reflect on that bring our experiences um, as well as having some um sessions to try and develop some skills so more recently we introduced something where we'll provide a topic to someone a random topic and they'll have to speak on it for two minutes which is a lot harder than it sounds, you know? So someone gives you a random topic and you just have to start speaking. And it, it's really difficult, but our hope is that it builds a bit of confidence with people that they're able to take something random, hold it, digest it, sit with discomfort, and then bring something out that maybe is coherent, maybe it's not, you know? But it's something about developing skills. And sometimes it's quite funny.
0: I love that and it's so interesting and it's so relevant to psych. So I spoke in a couple of episodes ago about a drop-in clinic that I used to run when I was on placement five of the course. Um, and that literally people would just turn up and I would know their name and that was it. And then it's like, go fix their problems in 20 minutes, you know, get them, get them on a right path. And I guess it's probably somebody quite similar to what the work you do as well. But um it was incredible and it was really a great way of learning you know and thinking on the spot and trying to be you know like you said trying to be coherent and trying to make sense but they're really really useful skills um to have and so yeah that sounds like an absolutely brilliant activity yeah
2: yeah Yeah, I think it's it's been good so far I think another thing that we we spoke about is trying to run some kind of clinics like you say to support people who are um, trying to progress in their career so there's some people who are currently working as um, healthcare support workers. I've also done that role, and they are hoping to get into a, a more psychologically minded role. Um, and so we're thinking of holding clinics and spaces where we can support people as a group. Someone can come in, speak to you, provide support. Um, I've I've done that with one of the people on our group so far. He's recently just got an AP job, um, which is which is great. I can't say I, I can't take credit for that because I only spoke to him. <laughs> 10 minutes 20 minutes but it's just really great to see that people progressing and um doing well which
0: is great love that so important and i held a very impromptu clinic in uh, the back of an uber recently as i was on the way back from my galway trip so um the lovely chap um who was driving me um had we were just chatting and he said that originally he'd gone to uni and he'd done law um But for a variety of reasons that I unpicked (laughs) during that journey, he hadn't progressed. And by the time we finished, while the homie dropped me at my house, he had a plan to at least Google in the gap that he had a master's to consider getting himself back on the law path. And I love that. And, like, he was so fired up. By the time we finish that sort of twenty-minute journey, the it's these micro interventions that can potentially have the difference to make a real difference and to inspire hope and possibility. I think.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really nice story. It kind of makes me think of some of the stuff that we do sometimes in AME and like single session work. So you're not sure someone turned up in AME. Yes, they keep attending, but because we're nine to five service, we don't always see people out of hours. Um, and so if we they are down there in Amy, we rush down and try and do a single session with them in the hope that that will um, start a process, you know, that we can get back involved with. So, yeah, that's kind
0: of what I think you've got I when you were saying that. It's all about potentially being the difference that makes the difference, isn't it? And meeting them where they're at when they've got the capacity to hear that and to work with those changes so I will likely never know the end of that story and that's a similar thing with with single session work isn't it that you don't get to know but very occasionally people will contact you and go you probably don't remember me but and you know you hear oh it made this massive change to me you know us spending that time together and so oh I just absolutely love it so Keep doing what you're doing um, personally and professionally if you had any top tip for reducing burnout in aspiring psychologists, what might that be Jonathan
2: that's a really really good question I think burnout's probably quite common within aspiring psychologists. I know that me myself I've definitely definitely been through that I think it's it's trying to quickly race through all these hoops and, and gaps that um, that we feel are in front of us. So for example, I when I work as a healthcare assistant on a, on a ward, I also um, volunteered as an AP in a different city. And so was doing the four days a week on this ward, driving to the city um, two days a week, and then coming back and then going back to work. And very, very quickly within a couple of months was starting to burn out. Um, and I think at that time what I used was the community around me, the people around me, of focus on the, the things that brought me joy you know and um, so that included playing sports playing football and going out with my friends seeing my family that kind of thing and prioritizing those things even though yes i wanted to um move forward in my career but i think prioritizing those things is really useful and again that's part of the reason why i think this um this bmap uh, space is really important because some aspiring psychologists can feel like they need to go to um I guess, different places in the, in the country. So maybe like you know, Scunthorpe or into Scotland, let's say they're from London, going all over the country um, to do these AP jobs and their, their community can't always follow them. So what I'm hoping is that this space can be a constant for people, you know, and they might know people in that city and people can feel more comfortable um, wherever they are. Yeah, I think being part of the community really, in, in summary to answer your question, could be really, really useful.
0: Oh, what a lovely, warming and totally on brand um, answer that was. Um, So thank you so much for your time in talking with us today and guiding us through a little bit about your story, a little bit about what got you into psychology, you know, what you're doing currently and also how you're trying to support, encourage and change people's experience of feeling othered or feeling lonely or feeling isolated and of wondering if this is even the right career for them so you're doing such incredible work Jonathan could you just remind us where the best place to contact you on socials is and I'll make sure I put that in the show notes and we'll have it on screen as well
2: yeah thank you and um, so we're on LinkedIn so bmap are on LinkedIn and I personally am on LinkedIn as Jonathan Paddy And we've got an email address, which is uh, bmap2023 at gmail.com. And I think those places would be great to contact us. We haven't yet got a Twitter, so we'll be working on that. But yeah, I just want to say it's not just me. Yes, I thought of the idea, but when I spoke to the people, they'd also had the idea as well. Um, I guess it was just about reaching out to people. And now I've got people on board who are really helping to to support and bring this to, to life, which is great.
0: Good. Well, I'm delighted to be able to get word out. Hopefully, further. And um, is it is it okay for international applicants to contact you as well? Because we do have listeners internationally.
2: Okay, that's really. I didn't talk about that at all, did I? Really. So our group is for aspiring psychologists, um, we have we basically take anybody who has already done a psychology degree. So if you've done a psychology degree or a conversion degree, that's fine. If you identify an as aspiring as a man and you're you advertise a black man then yes, get involved. I think um, we also are accepting of trainees. So that's one thing we spoke about at the last meeting. I think having aspiring psychologists and trainees in the same space feels like it could work. Um, We're not quite sure how we could manage um, qualified um, members of staff just because of the power. So we're trying to figure that out. Um, In terms of international, if people are hoping to um, get on any of the courses in the UK, I think, yeah, yeah we're more than more than happy more than open because that's kind of where our expertise is we do I don't know anything about um, psychology in other countries
0: no okay brilliant well it might be that as your own group members evolve and grow that you develop just naturally a qualified you know they almost you almost graduate to the qualified group um so I think I think it will do it itself naturally with time but well done for giving yourself permission to do that um and you know making the difference that you want to see in psychology it's incredibly admirable and I hope that you yeah I hope that you help many many people and I hope that you get on training very soon too yeah. Um sounds like you're doing great stuff
2: yeah thank you yeah no I, I hope so too I hope we can get people through the the process really it's it can be really tough so um yeah having this this here for people and i think it help support me but it should also help support other people so
0: yeah thank brilliant you. thank you so much for your time
2: thank you so much for having me
0: really happy to be uh-huh. here you're so welcome oh what a wonderful chat that was um i feel really excited for the profession of clinical psychology um and how people are just able to stand up and be the difference, um, to make the difference. I think it's really encouraging. If you're doing something exciting in the field of psychology um, or you'd like to pitch a different podcast episode to me, please do get in contact with me on my socials. Like I said, I'm Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere. And if you want to replay any of the Compassionate Q&A sessions, go to Dr. Marianne Trent on YouTube. Click the live tab because that's where they hang out there Uh, and you should be able to see them all. Uh, There's, of course, details in the show notes. But yeah, I will look forward to catching up with you for our next episode of the podcast, which will be available for you from Monday at 6 a.m. Take care of yourselves and thank you so much for being part of my world.
1: If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast, I feel sad to be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast. With Dr. Marianne. My name is Diakalola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK d application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favourite part of the book, as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.